Welcome to the Event Production Show podcast. These sessions were recorded from our 2022 show and are now available for you to listen to on the move. This session is all about how times changed. The future is here and the world that we knew has changed. So what does an immersive sporting event look like? This panel will discuss the roles of fan zones, working with local authorities and crowd control of closing public space. Hi everyone, welcome to um, our panel. My name is Tiffany Robb. I am from NAWI, the network of um, women in events. I have spent the last eight years working in live events, um, doing concerts, exhibitions, and engagement events. And I'm currently working as a digital events ma manager for Momentum. And I'm going to pass it over to our panel for them to introduce themselves. Uh, so my name, oh, um, my name's Taylor. I am senior event manager for the Jockey Club, um, currently based at Epsom Downs Racecourse. Have been there for six or seven years now. I think it's all merging. Um, and yeah, currently we're working on this year's Platinum Jubilee, uh, which is an official engagement of Her Majesty this year. Um, so yeah. Morning, I'm Harriet Brace. Uh, I run Accept Management, um, which provides entertainment and production to a few sporting events, including the Derby at Epsom and the Grand National. Um, I'm also treasurer for NAWI. Morning, I'm Phil Hodgetts. I'm production director at Momentum Worldwide. Uh, we're a creative event and production agency, uh, and we do a lot of uh, live sporting events and um, uh, activations of, of uh, corporate sponsorships. Morning, I'm Peter Hodges, PR and marketing director for a company called Sweet Spot. We are best known for organising the men's tour of Britain cycle race and also the women's tour cycle race. And actually, this morning we've announced first details of our route for the women's tour which takes place in June and includes our toughest ever summit finish in South Wales. So that's me. Great. Um, my first question for everybody is, what would you use one word to describe an immersive event? Um, so I'm going to go quite grand and say life-changing, because it's got a hyphen, so it's one word. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll step in. So I think, yeah, for me, the word immersive is, is a word that kind of gets thrown around quite a lot in, in event production, particularly um, in, in my in sort of agency world. Um, but I, I guess one, one word I would use I probably would be sensorial. I think it's really important that immersive events are designed in order to uh, engage with, every, with, with the audiences, all, all of their five senses, and I think that's very, very important. Yeah. I'll go for memorable. You know, that, that everyone, you know, generally the events we've been to, we have good memories of, positive memories. If people talk about events, I think memorable is the, uh, the word there. Cool. Um, and I know through a lot of everybody's work, you've had to create spaces where people may not really be interested in the sport that they've come to see, but want to enjoy the space and have a good time. Um, can Let's start with Taylor. Can you give me some examples of how you would manage like the footfall of people coming into a space where you wouldn't necessarily anticipate for a large crowd of people to come? Yeah, so at um, Epsom, we have a wide variety of people coming. You can either pay for your ticket in the Queenstand. Um, a lot of these guests are racing through and through, they love their sport, um, they're here for that that only a lot of the time. Um, we then go down into our Dutch stand, which is very much a young crowd looking for that social engagement, looking for the experience they can share with their friends and shout about. Um, and then onto the hill, we're one of the only, um, I think one of the only race courses, you can actually attend a world-class event for free. Um, so we can have up to about 100,000 people on the hill, hopefully on a good year, which it will be this year. Um, so a lot of the things we're trying to do is trying to really kind of section out who our guests are. And we, we're lucky enough to know that um, through years of um, looking into data, who will actually be within those areas. So we really try and tailor um, those, those sections to, to make the event right for that customer. Um, so for the Duchess stand example, we would have, um, it's a lot louder, it's a lot more creative. We have things like the Style Awards happening there, the celebrity areas, and places that, are, things that really try and catch people's eye and, and make people want to say, oh, you know what, I want to go there next year. Um, we're also looking on the hill, we're looking at um, fan zones this year. This, that's actually quite a new thing for us. Um, we've had areas such as family enclosures, which is this year going to be the Jubilee family 
enclosure, um, but we're working in ways with charities, etc., creating charity sections, fan zone areas to really try and engage our younger individuals with the sport itself because it is it's not a worry for us but it is a stress of ours that people that know sport and sorry racing are usually there because they want to be there like i said earlier they come in and basically we need to try and capture them for the rest of the year we've got so many other fixtures that we need them there for they're not just here for this big kind of all frills festival that we have we want to try and encourage the future of sport and the future of our guests coming back and uh, time and time again so we're really trying to there's lots yet to be confirmed so I can't <laughs> say too much um, but we're really trying to shout out and uh, tell people what's happening and give uh, what's the word people kind of glimpses into who we're having and try and excite people trying to make sure that they want to come and want to share with their friends yeah. and retain them in a sense absolutely but not just for I think when you go to a football or you go to rugby, people are all there usually because they love the sport. A lot of the time in racing, people come because they want a day out. They want to have a drink with their friends or they're on there on a corporate um, level. So we really want to retain those people for us for the rest of the year and for the rest of our fixtures throughout all of our race courses. And Harry, with your nearly 20 years experience in the industry, how would you sort of describe the wider role of fan zones and the events that you've worked in? I guess kind of just an extension of what Taylor said really, that it's about having an option that's suitable for everybody. So you've got your, whether it's cycling, whether it's racing, you've got your die-hard sports fans, but then it's people who kind of want to dip their toe in and just have that, the day out where the sport is almost slightly incidental to the event, but actually it can capture their imagination and they can be part of something. Um, because I think in some ways the hill at Epsom has sort of been one of the original fan zones that used to be where people from London came out, they came out for the day and it was a free day out for them. Um, and I think Habai did some work on 2012 and I think although we'd seen fan zones like at Euro 96 and stuff, um, I think 2012 kind of brought them back into public consciousness a little bit um, on a much bigger scale. Um, the fan zones that existed across Hyde Park and across London and also in other places in the country. Um, they're a real opportunity to have often a free way for people to come and enjoy the sport because quite often they are free to access mm -hmm. and if they're not free to access they're often at a lower price point than your kind of proper ticket for want of a better expression yeah. um it is it's just that it's that entry step quite often that i think is really important yeah and sort of phil from an agency perspective yeah. what would you class as like an immersive area that you would maybe suggest to a, a brand or a sponsor that you're you're looking to work with? Uh, yeah, so I suppose in the context of, of what we're talking about, sporting events particularly, we kind of look at it in two, two, dif two different avenues. Typically our clients will, will already have a sponsorship package in place with the rights holder or the, or the, or the, or the sporting, uh, sporting event in question. Mm -hmm. If they've got uh, if they've got a place on in the within the main compound or the main area of the event happening, then um, then really our, our approach to that is is to try and understand if there are any if there are any needs of the audience that aren't yet being met, and how and how can we tailor our experience to to to, to those those kind of needs. Um, that's really really important. Um, the challenge that we kind of find with that is that it can be quite there's a bit of tension between let's say our 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 agency's own creative ambitions. Our clients' corporate uh, strategies for that for that particular sponsorship, and 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 the conflict between what potentially the event owner uh, might also be wanting to, to achieve with their with their with their particular comms for that year. So there's, there's sometimes a bit of a bit of tension there to try and unpack, um, but typically that's solved by by trying to understand what the needs of the audience are. And there's normally some common ground that we can find. But what's really really nice about fan zones is that not only does it give the sports let's say the event owners, the opportunity to increase those sponsorship packages and offer, offer, offer other alternatives for, uh, for brand engagement. But for clients, or for our clients particularly, it's a really nice way of being able to sort of recontextualize that sport yeah. for a different audience in a way that's a bit more authentic for that, for that brand. Yeah. Um, so we found that there's a little bit more license for, for creative ambition and, and, and playfulness around with those, with those, uh, those fan zones, whether they're paid for or, 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 public, or in the public domain. Um, so yeah, that's that's a quite sort of fun fun little territory to play around in. Yeah, and um, PR, 
when you're putting on the tour of Britain, for example, um, how would like the residents take effect um, in the open road of of the event that you throw here? It's interesting because the Tour of Britain and the Women's Tour cycle racing, we're, we're fortunate to play in the public space. So kind of our fan zone is 200 kilometres long, the whole length of the road. But, mm -hmm. but we do have specific fan zones, particularly at the finish, which is really great for the, the brands and the casual fans mm -hmm. and, and the residents, because we're very fortunate that we can be in a, a town centre, a city centre. You know, we've held stages of the race in the centre of London. We've, we've held one round XL, actually. Uh, this year we're going to the Isle of Wight, last year, but we can be literally anywhere. One day we're on the top of a hill, one day in a town centre, one day city centre. But it, it's great because for us it's, then it's unique that we're saying to, to brands or people that want to be involved, well we're engaging communities, residents, not just around a stadium, not just in a city centre, but potentially on the first day in Cornwall, eight days later in Aberdeen, and all the way along the route. So we do a lot of work. Um, both from a, a sort of hardcore fan point of view. Mm -hmm. um, naturally, you know, cycling fans are going to want to come to the Tour of Britain because it's kind of the highlight of the cycling calendar in this year. It's the, one of the, the biggest road race event in, uh, in the UK. But for the residents, it's about trying to engage them. And the one, one thing that you know, Britain is fantastic at is you have an event in the town and people want to come out and get, wave their flags, put bunting up and, and celebrate, particularly when it's a free to attend event. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine that the, when we've got a stage that's 200 kilometres long going from, say, Penzance to Bodmin, it almost becomes a carnival, a procession. We're trying to engage all of those communities along the way and all of those residents. And you know, one of the important things, it's not just a bike race, there is legacy. You know, um, we do a survey, an independent company does a survey for us. 60% of people that were surveyed last year said they were inspired to cycle more often mm -hmm. because we're not just going, oh, that's a nice place to have a bike race. We're working with the local authorities. So if you like, the local residents, local communities and metaphor are actually bought in and invested in the event. Mm -hmm. So if you like, it's, it's perhaps a bit easier for us to be working with local residents. It's not like having an event in a stadium where they're perhaps mm -hmm. going, oh, you're going to be causing noise all night and disrupting us with parking and things. Yeah. But for you, like, so, so that what, from what I hear from that is that the word, the term immersive, that means something completely different to you than it does, yeah. does to me, right? Because Absolutely. from your point of view, immersion is more about inclusion, I suppose, making sure people yeah. feel like they've contributed to that event it, uh, as, it, as, it, as it's passed by and them. And right? accessibility. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd go and say we're the most immersive event in Britain. Of course, I've always worked. <laughs> but, you know, what, what's more immersive than an event that can go over eight days from Cornwall to Aberdeen or this year Aberdeen to the Isle of Wight? You know, by definition, and it's free to attend, you know, literally we're bringing world-class cyclists, male and female, past your doorstep, past your school, past your place of work. And you know, literally it's sort of a, a 3D experience, which yeah, is almost the definition of a nurse. Mm. And can I just ask you, Taylor, how do you engage the sport with like, the wider social experiences? Um, so, I mean, a lot of the stuff we're trying to do, a, a big part of our journey actually in 2020 was really trying to connect what our marketing was um, previously mm -hmm. with when people hit the gates how did they feel how did they walk through the, what what did they see on social media or what did they see on our comms that meant that they were hitting the event and knew I knew everything that I was going to see here it's kind of electric it's I, I recognize this mm -hmm. so something we were really trying to work on is pushing our brand throughout the site I think something we've not done so well previously is really every every area has been very different it's kind of not really connected with the story that you lead into into the event itself so you'd see one different thing on social media and a completely different thing when you walked through the door mm -hmm. so for us it was really about ensuring the entrances the the videos that we had that went out um pre-event which were all about the way that the horse moved its breath it's everything that kind of made made the sport what it is and why the derby winner mm -hmm. is what it is just to try and connect people with the sport to, to make sure that and then when they hit the gates we would have those movies, have that kind of heartbeat playing as you came through the gates. So to really build the excitement, I mean, we have totally different plans this year now uh, because the branding's changed. Um, so, but so we're working on that. But previously, that's really what we tried to push for, so that you walk through and you really feel like you've recognised something that you've been really looking forward to for a long time, and it captures you from there. And even if you walk away from the sport learning one thing about what makes a great racehorse or 
what, what you need to do to be an owner and we can connect with them in one way, then we hope that way that we'll bring them back again and again. Yeah, that makes um, complete sense to the customer journey from beginning to end to opposed to talking about it with your friends after. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's so important for us to work so closely with marketing because we, we do so much together and, and what we create really we, as our jobs in operations, we create their vision. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really for us trying to make sure that yeah, you walk in and you think, God, this is the derby I've, I've really been wanting to go to and, mm -hmm. and sharing that, please. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> um, and Harriet, from an independent sort of perspective, um, prescribing to the client's needs, how do you manage that when it comes to a sporting event and fan zoning? So I guess it's kind of trying to understand what it is they're trying to achieve, like who they're trying to reach. Um, that's always going to come back to like what, what their main objective is. Um, is it a case that they're trying to offer more to people who come anyway? Are they trying to, do they want to increase the ticket price and they need to make sure that they've justified that? Are they trying to appeal to a different demographic that will require a different experience on site? Um, they are always the first sort of questions to ask because the best idea in the world isn't the best idea in the world if it's for the wrong audience. Um, and I think especially now I'm going to be the first one to say the dreaded C word I think but like in a post I mean post COVID like we're still in COVID but um, you know since COVID has happened audience behaviour that we've all made a lot of decisions kind of based on for years and years and years has changed drastically and I think we are still learning a how it's changed and b how much of that change is going to be permanent and how much is temporary yeah. um, and that is having quite a big impact on kind of how decisions are made because obviously some people are very much kind of quite carefree now and happy to go out to things and happy to plan and go to events others are still wanting to do those things but are perhaps a bit nervous so do you perhaps need to reduce your capacities ever so slightly just to create a bit more space you know all of these questions are now added to the list of questions that existed even before 2020 yeah well last book done that recently they dropped I think it was correct me if I'm wrong by 4,000 people they've dropped their capacity just to make sure people feel safer um, coming into the venue even though when they did that it wasn't it was the pressure was kind of releasing from COVID yeah most definitely and you guys have led straight into the next question that I had about post-COVID <laughs> pandemic restrictions I just wanted to hear how um, in creative industries um, how did you adapt to that restri those restrictions that were placed at the height of COVID to sort of now it being lifted? What does that kind of look like in all of your respective places of work? I think um, the, the biggest thing that we adapted to was the, and it, and it sounds a bit silly, but it's the remote working. So as I said, we work with sort of 30 plus local authorities across the country on, on just the Tour of Britain, let alone the, the women's store or other events. So the, re the remote working really helped, but ironically it brought us closer together because there was a feeling of almost we're all in this together. So fortunately, I think we've come through it with, if you like, establishing better relationships with our, our suppliers, uh, the, the event locations, the venues we have. Um, but yeah, it's been a massive challenge. And if you like, our biggest uh, selling point beforehand was, you know, free to attend event, unticketed. Well, obviously, as soon as the pandemic started, you were saying to people, yeah, we're going to have a a bike race it's going to cover 200 kilometers we're not going to know who any of those spectators are and uh, oh yeah we're going to bring in some riders from abroad and they're going to we're going to fly them into the southwest of england fly them out eight days later they're staying eight different hotels yeah. um, some of the sort of public health people we spoke to locally you could see the, the sheer dread on their face at, what, what are you trying to do here but it, it made us really appreciate actually how fortunate we are to play in public space and actually how fortunate with bike races they are out in the fresh air uh, and kind of going back to sort of um, Harriet's point about the behaviour of people. Last September, when we had the Tour of Britain, it was sort of our first event after, if like, restrictions had eased. Mm -hmm. uh, and we saw, uh, whether it's a sort of immediate boom and then it was settled down this year, people were just so keen to come out and be able to see an event and enjoy an event. And we're obviously very lucky that when you've got a, a stage finish, it covers a couple of kilometres, people can spread out, there's plenty of rooms, so they're not huddled on a terrace or sat in an arena. So. From that point of view, we're very lucky to be outside, but also it presents completely different challenges because of that unique nature. Mm. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I can answer that question. Um, so, yeah, being being in a production agency, uh, working with half of corporate clients, we had we had a pretty turbulent couple of years. Um, like most agencies, we immediately kind of reverted to let's say like virtual virtual um, conferencing technologies, um, which were okay for a time. Um, yeah, I suppose the way that we that we that we adapted creatively was. To, to sort of invest a lot of time in in, uh, in development of content as opposed to live events, mm-hmm. um, we shifted a lot of. Uh, it was obviously the first during the first summer was was pretty tough, but as we came into the into the winter time and kind of let's say virtual conference season yeah. started, um, mm-hmm. there was some opportunities there to explore uh, explore how we could convert let's say more traditional conference formats into into entertainment content and, and variety shows and that kind of thing that we could then broadcast to our clients employees and, and, and partners and that kind of thing so that was an interesting avenue and then and now we've kind of uh, we've kind of now moved into a slightly more innovative area I suppose and in, in, in starting to embrace far more uh, far more innovative technologies uh, in order to try and uh, stay diversify our, our, our production offering and, and I suppose the pandemic has served to accelerate that trajectory that we that we would typically have been on anyway um, and you know we're, and we're starting to, to look into uh, how we are how looking at how technology can help us to bring remote audience into, into the live space and how we can and also to introduce the live audience into a more sort of virtual digital plane as well and so those those sort of roots of roots of engagement are now starting to really start uh, to really start to see the benefits of those. Um, yeah. um, has the pandemic affected you and your in the jockey club and the reasons? Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so we were we had a very odd situation in that uh, us at jockey club venues we weren't we could either be a hospitality venue or we could be, we were technically classed as elite sport because of the racing. So I was very lucky within two months of the pandemic, I actually came back and, um, and ran racing behind closed doors. A very, very different experience. Sat in the car park some days, taking people's temperatures, you know, our job roles completely changed. And I think learning to be adaptable and, and just to learn to, to, we're so reactive as our jobs in, in operations. Like, that is the core of what we do. We need to be there to, to change and, and to move with whatever's happening in the world. And for, for us, we were the people that our clients, from exhibitions to hospitality or for racing, their confidence was within us. And we really had to know our stuff to be able to reassure them to make sure that they knew what they were doing. And a lot of work with local communities and local um, councils to make sure they felt confident in what we did as a venue in order to run our, our events on behalf of other people. Um, so yeah, very weird time. Um, hopefully we've just taken the stickers of the one-way system out of the staircase. <laughs> so fingers crossed. Um, we don't have to put them down. We don't back. have to put them down because it was a real pain. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just a question for you, Peter. How do you deal with um, the expectations of hardcore cycling fans versus um, the casual fans of, of, of residents and people just being there, sort of hopping out outside of their door, ready with family members and the bunting? How do you manage the expectations of, of both of them, especially in this post-COVID world that we're trying to all figure out? It's, it's a real challenge because obviously the hardcore and, and it's very easy sometimes for some of us, particularly I'm a big cycling fan, so you naturally lean towards the hardcore cycling fans. So it's good we've got people in our organisation that are more casual sports fans or, or even not sports fans that kind of hold you to account on, well actually is that going to appeal to the, the, the non-cycling fans? So we're very lucky, you know, the hardcore cycling fans typically, they will go out and watch, they'll be cycling up to the top of the King of the Mountains, they'll be watching on the route, they will be coming out because they want to see the riders on the toughest bits of the course, or they want to meet Mark Cavendish. But it kind of goes back to the points about the fan zone. The fan zone is really good for the casual fans because they can come down, and if mum or dad's the keen cyclist, they might be stood at the barriers, glued to the big screen. But then you've got things for the rest of the family to explore, that perhaps start educating them about cycling or getting them involved, letting them find out more about British cycling, becoming a member, or Sustrans and other cycling schemes or local cycling clubs. So we almost want to, you know, I always say, once you take someone to a bike race, very few people go away afterwards and go, oh, that was boring. 
that was that wasn't exciting. Yeah. It's getting them there. So once we can get them there, we can kind of convert them if you like. And the, the fan zone and the activities at the finish, having stuff going on all the time, so it's not just waiting for a bike race to come, is really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really um, well-rounded way to look at it to make sure that everyone's sort of benefiting from something when they when they're coming to to your events. Um, I just had a question about theoretical immersive sporting events, and if you had considered it in your in your areas of expertise and what that would maybe look like. Let's start with you, Harriet. So, you kind of using technology mm-hmm. more. So, I kind of feel like, um, and I was thinking about this when Phil was talking about it, that for events people during the past couple of years, I think you've kind of gone one way or the other. That you've either kind of gone and looked and thought wow, look at what technology can do. And I think certainly for your kind of your big international conferences and that kind of thing, where a lot of time and money was being spent flying people around the world to get them in the same room, they've kind of looked and gone, well, actually, like, we can do this virtually and save a lot of time and resource and money. Um, on the flip side of that, which is the side that I kind of more ascribe to, is the, the fact that all the all the zooms in the world or the technology in the world I don't think can replace that shared experience of being in a field or in a stadium or in an arena or you know whatever it might be with your best mates with your family and having that shared experience so I think there is huge you know technology obviously is going to be a key part of events going forward do I think it can replace that actual live experience personally I'm not convinced Film, just, you know, mm. I think obviously there's a balance, yeah. um, but I think I will always advocate for that kind of shared experience in a place together with people. Yeah. But I think I think though, particularly with sporting events, and, and this is probably quite key for, for your particular event as well, is like when we think about experiential, immersive experience that are, ta- that are tacked onto a sporting event. What, what creatively, I guess, from our point of view, the first thing we think of is can we somehow replicate what replicate the experience of playing that, yeah, that playing that sport, whether it's tennis, football, whatever, cycling or, or, or hockey, whatever it might be. Typically, you know, let's take football for an example. If, if, we, uh, if we were to, 15, 20 years ago, look at what a football fan park might look like, you would expect to see lots of beat the goalie competitions and, and sort of keepy-uppy competitions and things like that to engage families, kids and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that takes up a lot of footprint and yeah. that's expensive. What's, what's really, really interesting with technology is that that affords us the opportunity to virtually replicate some of those experiences, take up a lot less space, increase your throughput through those experiences, and, 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 and increase your footprint. Uh, sorry, increase your footfall yeah. through the space. So, you know, there's there's some really good really good opportunities there, and I think that, that that's where technology helps, yeah. right? And I completely agree with you. Remote remote working zooms. I, I can't stand. It. I've had enough of it. <laughs> but in terms of like brand engagement and and engaging engaging potential consumers of a sport like cycling I think there's there's real good opportunities there um, so that that, that that should be over I think oh sorry okay. I was just going to say I think for some events for example London Fashion Week and um, all around the world they, there are some events that actually people like myself maybe couldn't have accessed because I'm not one of those VIP members and I wish I was um, but uh, there, there are now events that, because they've been forced to put these things on stage and, and been forced to have to communicate with people because they weren't allowed to come and see their events. Um, so it's actually enabled people like myself to be able to, to to get involved in those events and really see what's going on. And and if it's something I would never be able to attend, well, at, at the moment, I think that's amazing and how they how they can put that display on and see people's creativity. You get to see what's happening. You really just get to be involved in a different world that you wouldn't necessarily be a part of if you weren't a, a VIP as such. But just on conferences themselves, we have a lot of um, exhibitions, conferences at Epsom too. And for us, people are doing a lot more online, but they're also using that once a year opportunity to really kind of get together and just say hello. There are so many people. I mean, we were talking earlier that, you know, a lot of people haven't even met their co-workers they haven't actually seen these people in person and in our industry it's a very tactile industry we, we get to know what we're doing we we um, work with people hands-on I'm sure we've all loved things around and, and been active on site so it's it's really important to meet these people but I mean at the same time as these conferences being a place a, a safe place for everyone to kind of 
get together, they've also have some negatives. I mean, in terms of wanting that Zoom technology in our conference spaces, and ours aren't necessarily built for that. Um, I mean, you have places like this, which are wonderful, um, and you can and bring the, that technology in. But for us, it's it's a real, it's a test. And our Queen standards, thirty odd years old, it does, it's not built for that. So really, keeping updated with the technologies of venues is, is there's been a huge jump where we weren't really there to see that jump. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, definitely. And just on the topic of challenges, um, let's start with you, Phil. Have you ever encountered any negative impacts of maybe hosting a immersive sporting fan zone area? And how did you overcome it? Negative impact? Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose... Yeah, I suppose I can give you an example of... Um, I was I was working uh, I was working for a gaming company or on behalf of a gaming company at a football event at Fanzone, activating uh, activating that brand there. The challenge that we came up against was that it was a public fan zone with a, with a large screen showing the games, um, no real no real crowd management other than let's say like capacity management mm-hmm. and, a little, and a smattering of security. As the day progresses. The nature of the audience changes. Um, the tone of the tone of the engagement changes. Mm-hmm. Um, the people drinking, the sun's out, um, and so it's quite difficult to it's quite difficult, I suppose, to maintain like a, a family-oriented uh, fan execution or brand execution, but also also manage the space in a way that that, that that is protective of your staff and you know and and, and has a, has enough of a enough of a presence about it, let's say, from a security point of view, that protects, protects it from, let's say, uh, undesirable people mm-hmm. or undesirable members of the, members of the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I suppose not massively negative, but it's, it's certainly something that we've had to, we've had to consider. And it, it, fall, it falls within, within sort of health and safety, crowd management principles and that kind of thing, but it's definitely something that there, there's a real stark contrast with, with, with what your brand is trying to put across. And, and what potentially you might be come up against, come up against with regards to the nature of the audience you've got, which you can't really control because it's being managed by, by an external, yeah, by, uh, by third parties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Harry, I know you spent some time working at the 2012 Olympics. Um, do you have any insight or examples of impacted of smaller events that were going on around at that time, and how did you overcome it? Not. Not hugely. Um, I was mainly chained to a rehearsal space um, for the closing ceremony, so it wasn't wasn't around a huge amount. Um, but I mean, broadly, not really. In my experience, um, I spent a lot of time in Glasgow in 2014 for the Commonwealth Games as well, and they had similar kind of fan zones set up there. And actually, it's it's really lo- I think London, especially, is notorious for not always being the friendliest city. Yeah. And I think that was one of the kind of the great things about 2012 was that actually kind of people were engaging with each other. People would kind of strike up conversations on the tube. And can you you know can you imagine today if someone starts talking to you on the tube, you'd look at them like they were crazy. Like, so I think that was a really nice. Um, it spread out, and I think that's one of the great things about fan zones is that it kind of it spreads that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So it's not just when you're in the Olympic Park, it's not just when you're in the fan zones, it's also when you're walking down the street on your way home, it's when you're on the tube afterwards. Yeah. Um, it's talking about it with your friends in the office the next day, like it has that knock-on, long-lasting effect. effect. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that everyone sort of has a memory of that time and of that period. Some met somebody that you didn't know before that you kind of will never forget. Yeah. <laughs> Um, at this time, we're going to turn towards the audience, and if you have any questions, um, feel free to ask. There's a question over there. I think there's a microphone just on the way to you. Be nice. <laughs> have any of you used sort of the new... We can hear you. <laughs> Have any of you used the, the new technology that's coming out with monitoring people's moods with cameras and things as you're walking around the venues? Uh, I've had experience of that. Not, not, um, not at vol- the volume that you're suggesting, that, as in like full sort of crowd, um, crowd, crowd 
assessment, I suppose. But on, a, on an individual level, we, we've used similar technologies, um, artificial intelligence to um, interrogate somebody's mood by their facial expressions, let's say, and then make recommendations about how they might go through, the, through our experience um, based on how they're, how, how they're feeling um, on a number of sentiments. Um, Typically, we use it for, for cocktail bars. So if you're feeling a certain way, um, go get this drink or go get this drink. Um, that's, that's been quite a fun one. Um, but that technology obviously has got loads of, loads of potential for experience. Hi, yeah, um, I'm Jodie Sonnet from uh, Arena Group. Um, I just had a question regarding the changing nature of sports events. Obviously, we've spoken about COVID um, and generally people being slightly nervous about big events and being in those spaces. Um, but do you think that there is also a changing nature with people preferring to access um, big sporting events outside of being in that in that event so not in that space uh, due to like we've spoken about um, potentially being able to access the sport better so hearing that live commentary that you might not get um, and it being potentially um, and this is a, a, you know elitist is it becoming a, a place of corporate event rather than for people to be able to access that from from all areas I just wanted to know any of your opinion on that uh, it's probably, yeah. um, it's probably I, I know the racing kind of comes with its preconceptions and, and obviously it notoriously is quite a difficult sport to be involved in. Not, not everyone can own a racehorse, not everyone can train a racehorse. Um, but what we are trying to do, I think you're right, you're right. essentially we're, we're trying to access the people that want to come out for a day out and want to be a part of the future of racing knowing that you don't necessarily have to own a racehorse. There are other routes to do that if you didn't potentially have the money and you wanted to be involved in that. We have all sorts of syndicates that are available, but not, not just for the people that want to buy in, essentially. We're, we're really trying to host fan zones. Um, and we're, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We've got, we've got a new area, basically, this year that hasn't quite been announced, but it's for the race of fraternity so that people that are involved in the sport or are interested in the sport and want to talk to other like-minded people can go there because not everyone wants to talk to someone in the village that's on, on the booze and not interested in racing, they're just there for a, a good time. So we're really trying to create those spaces where one, either at base level you can learn about the sport, so our fan zones which will hopefully have um, all of the kits you can, I don't know what they're called, but where you can practice on the racehorses and and learn about um, the charities that we work with and the training of racehorses um, and, and where we come from, but also those areas for the people that actually do have a lot more knowledge of it, but want to work with like-minded people. So we're trying this year to really open all doors. And we're very lucky with the venue that we have that we can, not section it is the wrong word, because we want everyone to intermix, but at the same time, you do feel like you're comfortable in your space. You know that you're, you're in a space with other like-minded people that will hopefully essentially enhance your experience because you haven't just got caught up with, I don't know, Jim has got beer all down you and, you know, <laughs> hopefully that won't happen anyway. I, I think there's kind of two things that I would touch on for that. One is cost. I think that inevitably, so one of the things that we're kind of seeing in post-COVID behaviour is that people are booking things later, um, which, you know, has good, good things and bad things, but I think that what we're going to see, particularly in the next couple of months, is the cost of living increase really start to bite, and people are going to see that their disposable income to spend on non-essentials, because ultimately that's what we all deal with, on, you know, non-essential purchases, um, they're not going to have as much cash to, to kind of throw around, so we have to be mindful of a giving opportunities to get in at a lower price point but also be um, making that experience worthwhile and stand out from the crowd in quite a busy market this year particularly um, the other thing that I would touch on is also you know I think that what we are seeing again kind of coming out of COVID is broadly potentially a bit of a kind of a mental health pandemic where people are genuinely quite concerned about being in large crowded spaces um, even before COVID 
I always found myself dealing with far more mental health first aid issues on site than I ever did kind of physical first aid. It's increasingly been something that is, is more and more prevalent. And I think that those less intimidating spaces, those spaces where there is kind of more square footage per person, um, and also where perhaps you haven't committed the same amount of money and so you're less concerned about that financial risk can be a way to help people feel like it's a safe space that they can go to, like they're willing to kind of make that commitment. I, I think you've touched on a really interesting opportunity for brands as well. Um, and not, I'm not talking specifically about like an alternative space for people to congregate, but I'm talking about enhancing people's experience of live sport from, from home. Um, we, we did some work last year during the pandemic, one of our clients, um, major, major sporting event, and we worked up some concepts about um, developing a kind of a digital companion that, 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 that sits alongside someone as they're, as, they're, as they're viewing the sport through traditional broadcast methods, right? And the idea there is that, is that you're able to access exclusive content about what's happening live via a, via a sort of branded digital environment, right? That, that, that I, think, I think there is a really, really exciting opportunity for brands to start exploring and, and, and more so when we're starting to talk about augmented reality and, and, and wearable technology as well where there's opportunities there for almost like that kind of digital counterpart to exist alongside a live sporting event. Um, that's really, really exciting for me and I think that's, that's, that's definitely where we're going to start to see that, 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 come, that, come, quite, that come through quite quickly I think. Um, it's all really kind of happening, like you're accessing, you can access football now through Amazon um, and uh, here, here and there, but the experience of watching through Amazon is slightly more, slightly more sophisticated, I would say, than than watching the BBC or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, just because, just because of the, the the platform on which you're accessing it through has got a lot more opportunity. Um, yeah, but thing, but things like alternative commentaries, like uh, you know, um, uh, in, in, in interviews with with sort of past heroes and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. If you can wrap that up in a branded package that you can stick a, a, a corporate logo on. That's a huge opportunity, for, particularly for event production agencies. Yeah, yeah I think there's a, a growing expectation as well that, and, and as other people have said, you know, people are going to be face choices about going to events, whether that's because of cost or, uh, as we say, sort of mental health issues around, you know, do I want to be in crowds? Do I feel safe? There's a growing expectation that you're going to be able to consume that event wherever you are, so at home, through streaming. Um, We've all probably been there in terms of there's something on, particularly a sporting event, you think, oh, it's on this weekend, I'll watch that. And then it's like, oh, it's not on, or it's on highlights, or it's on a package I've not got. And we've obviously, you know, we've just mentioned Amazon there, there's now more and more different places to watch and consume. But I think there will be that expectation that now any event you are able to consume, whether it's behind a paywall or not, from somewhere by not going to it. And I think that could become more and more important um, you know, with the cost of petrol and things going up but perhaps some people are going to you know we're fortunate free to attend event but obviously people still have to travel to that particularly when we go to remote locations like hilltops in mid wales you know it's not near a huge population so yeah it's that expectation i think that okay i can't make it but i still want to join that event i still want to enjoy it and then that leads into the great opportunities for brands to bring it to people and i think there was one more question Hello. Um, sorry, I think you were touching on it there. It was um, about the metaverse and virtual reality and the kind of place that you see that playing in immersive sporting events in the coming years and how quickly you see that unraveling. You were sort of touching on it there, but I don't know if, if anyone else had anything to add to that. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think the metaverse is, is I suppose, the. I mean, I'm, I don't know a great deal about it. I've, I've, as much as anybody here to be honest but it certainly feels like the next frontier yeah 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 if, if, you, if you take that label off of it like we're already sort of experiencing the metaverse through Facebook, Facebook. and you know you know digital digital social media technologies and that kind of thing so it's really just an, an additional you know expansion on that I believe I don't, I don't think there's that by giving it a label that almost puts a ceiling on the opportunity as far as I can say I don't really understand necessarily what metaverse means but I do I, I do appreciate you know the, the the world in which that, that we're discussing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think sporting events and 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 all and all kind of live events, we can't really ignore the opportunities now to to engage with an audience that isn't that isn't att attending in, in in person. Um, I would I would say that probably the from from a from a brand's point of view anyway, 
the majority or, or there's a hell of a lot of value in in an audience that isn't on site, as far as I can tell, right? And and you already see it with, you know, but I've seen so much so much of our production budget going on influencer fees these yeah. days, right? And that's not for the people that are on site, that's for people sitting at home on, on, on TikTok and Instagram. And so you can see that the the the, the, uh, the priority is starting to shift, right? And and I think that's 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 an interesting trend that you need to we all need to be aware of and, and certainly the metaverse or whatever you want to call it is is going to it's going to exacerbate that and accelerate it. I think. Yeah. It's all part of the immersive experience. Exactly. At the end of the day, yeah. whether you're at yeah. the event or sat at home, or you know, whether you're sat in the UK or sat on the other side of the world, yeah. it's being able to be part of the event. And yeah, whether metaverse is, uh, you know, whether that's just Mark Zuckerberg's got meta and that seems to be the new name for it. But it's yeah. it's yeah, trying to get people that you know, it, it, it is a great opportunity for small events because actually through a digital footprint you can now be worldwide. You know, you're not just confined to the location that you're taking place in. And, and we've seen that certainly, that brands are more interested, if you like, in the digital audiences than the, the audiences at the roadside from our point of view. It's because arguably we know more about the digital audience than we do about the, the person that's just stepped out of their house to wave a flag as we race past. Mm -hmm. Can I just follow up quickly? Do you see a version of, of, of that virtual reality immersive event where uh, the audience member can tap in so closely that they can basically be stood on the pitch with the footballers, you know, from, from afar. I guess it's that level of virtual reality. Well, I, I was thinking when you were talking about could you, could we could we put a put a body cam on a on a cyclist and get them in the get them in the race? And Absolutely. So yeah. I mean, we've seen over the last few years, and events have had live uh, GoPro cameras on riders and uh, Velon um, with like the Tour de France major events do a great job on the rider data so people can sit at home. We did a virtual event on RGT, so an equivalent to Zwift, uh, during the first, uh, the first lockdown, uh, it seems a long time ago now, with Skoda, where we had virtual races, we had cameras on everyone's bikes at home around the world, and it was broadcast on BBC Sport. But the, the next step, and I think people are already talking about and trying to make this happen, is you're watching a stage of the Tour de France, the Tour of Britain, whichever race, how can you be sat at home on a virtual trainer, effectively in the peloton with them, you're riding and you can see that when they go up that hill, Peter scans what, so this, and can you match it in real time? Um, there's lots of issues there about data from riders and the sort of um, who owns what, but it's certainly, I think, possible, and that, I think, will be the next thing that we see, because as it is, you can go home and ride, if you like, uh, afterwards on the roads and uh, virtually and, and compare yourself to the data that you've seen on the TV. How do you do that in real time? Yeah. Um, it's really exciting. The, the other inhibitor, I suppose, also is bandwidth. And, and we're, we're talking about sort of high def or 4K video content for the majority of the time here. And if we want to make that interactive and adaptable and, 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 and feeling immersive for each individual, that, that requires a lot of bandwidth. And you don't have any control over how your end user is experiencing that content. And so that, that's what we found a lot with virtual conferencing as well. It's, you know, you can broadcast it out, but the three or four thousand people at home are all having a slightly different experience of that content because, because they've got internet issues or, mm -hmm. or whatever it might be, or, or their, their laptop or their phone is slightly substandard. So that's something to be con to consider because you can't, you, the live audience, you can pretty much guarantee the experience they're going to get. You can watch them having it. You've got to be very, very careful, particularly from my, in my industry where we're representing corporate sponsors, that you can really guarantee the, the quality of that engagement for every individual regardless of where in the world they're accessing the content. So, yeah. Okay, I have one final question for everyone. It's a bit of a fun one. Um, so for someone new that's entering the events space, what advice would you give them? Ooh, I think for me, I mean, <laughs> lovely Harriet here was the first person that met me when I was 18 um, in the events world. and. I think just be yourself and, and have passion for what you're doing and, and show people you've got passion for what you're doing. A lot of the time, I know now as an employer within the company rather than being just an, an employee, I know now what I'm looking for are people that really want to be there and really want to make sure that that experience is there from the start to the finish and they're going to turn up, they're going to enjoy, hopefully enjoy it. and be a part of the event, there's nothing worse than someone that is just doing a job within events because 
we live and breathe these experiences and if you aren't passionate about it end result is the event's probably not going to be the best it can be because someone's not there pushing it and wanting it to to, to be the best it it can so i think for me it's really network and show show people how much you love the industry and show people what you want to do i think i would say don't feel like you have to know everything like we are all only as good as our networks it's not about like i'm not a lighting engineer i'm not a you know you don't have to be all of these things you just have to surround yourself with good people and good people that you can trust who have the same kind of moral compass as you and who work in similar ways to you and i think yeah and don't be afraid to ask questions i'd say get some sleep now (laughs) (laughs) that's Um, the greatest advice i've heard (laughs) Uh, no but yeah i I guess the same as him as these guys have just said for, for me, it's about knowing your worth, where you add value, mm-hmm. and, and it's it's worth special. It's good to specialise. At the same time, don't don't shirk away from from filling in gaps when you see them. Right, mm-hmm. and, uh, particularly working on site. You know, no one has a job role on site, as far as I can say. Everybody's getting everybody mucks in and gets involved. And you mm-hmm. have to have that mentality. It can either bring out the best in someone or bring out the worst in someone, and you need to be, be the sort of person who brings out the best in. If you're, that, if you're that sort of person, then, then there's a role, there's a space, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I agree. Get, get stuck in, but most of all, do something you're interested in. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in it, you'll enjoy it. And as everyone here will know, you know, the events industry, it's, it's not all fun and laughter. There is lots of hard work. But at the end of the day, if it's something that you enjoy, you can tolerate the long hours, the sleepless nights and so forth. So if you're interested in it, pursue it, get stuck in. Want to learn more about the show that brings together event Thank you, everyone. every Thank sector? You. Visit eventproductionshow.co.uk.